Well, good morning again. We come now to uh, our scripture reading, next scripture reading for the sermon text, which is Psalm 110. Uh, we, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're beginning a, a series uh, in uh, an Advent series in the Psalms. So we're going to be looking at four Psalms over the next four weeks. And they are Psalms that uh, are uh, traditional Christmas Day Psalms, actually. And, and as we look at them week after week, you might wonder, how is this a Christmas psalm? Uh, and, and But I hope as we talk about it, that will become clear. So our first psalm is going to be Psalm 110 this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110 if you're not already there. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we Thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come to you, to hear from you. Uh, we pray that your spirit would be at work, that he would be softening our hearts, opening our minds, uh, giving us joy in your mercy and grace, teaching us to delight in our Savior, Jesus, we do pray that Jesus would be bigger in our minds and our hearts uh, when we're done uh, than he was when we woke up this morning. We pray that you would be glorified, that, that you would glorify your son in our midst by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The mess of this life is caused by poor leadership. It's true. Uh, mismanagement is the cause of all the troubles in the world. You see, Adam and Eve were set up to lead. They were set up to govern, to manage the affairs of creation, and they failed. Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 28 says, uh, God blessed them, his newly created people, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, rather than taking dominion over fish and birds and every living thing, Adam was misled by a beast of the field that crafty, demon-possessed serpent, you may know the story. Of course, poor leadership didn't end there. Uh, we, we see it in the book of Judges. 
Uh, the book of Judges, which is this downward sm- spiral in Israel, ends with these depressing words in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The lack of leadership led to chaos. Israel eventually did get a king and a whole system of government, but they didn't fare much better. We read this indictment of Israel's leaders in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, that is the leaders, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Well, then as you read through scripture, Jesus comes on the scene. He sees sees shepherdless Israel and is moved. Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus came to be that shepherd, to be Israel's leader, to be the king of Israel, even the king of heaven and earth. And that's the message of Christmas, is it not, right? That the king has come. Uh, The birth narrative of Jesus, especially in the book of Matthew, pictures him as a coming king, right? He is the descendant of David, the coming king of the Jews, to whom even the Gentile wise men gave homage. Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four psalms that point us forward to the coming king, Jesus. And this week, we're going to look at Psalm 110, and we'll see five things. First, we'll see that Jesus has been exalted. Second, that Jesus is presently ruling. Third, that Jesus reigns as king and priest. Fourth, that Jesus will put the world right. And fifth, that Jesus' victory is certain. Uh, Put differently, we'll look at the inauguration of Jesus' rule, the manifestation of Jesus' rule, the grace of Jesus' rule, the justness of Jesus' rule, and the end of Jesus' rule. So first, Jesus has been exalted, the inauguration of Jesus' rule. When you look at Jesus' life, there are uh, very few points at which he looked kingly. Here's what I mean. Uh, He was born into a poor family in a stable. He was placed in a feeding trough. His first trip was not to to grandma's house, but to Egypt to flee from the then King Herod who wanted him dead. Oh, sure, there, there were the wise men and the angelic appearance to the shepherds. 
but shepherds. I mean, they were the lowest of society. And after all that, as far as we can tell, life was pretty mundane. Then there were Jesus' ministry years. He had some popular appeal for a while, but he was rejected by the religious and political elite and was always on the run. Eventually, even the crowds turned on him. Then you have the end of his life, accused, tried, convicted, sentenced, crucified, nothing kingly there, hung on a cross like a common criminal. There was the sign, I guess, a pilot hung above Jesus, a sign that said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But it was really a charge, not an announcement. In fact, the religious leaders didn't like the sign as it stood. And uh, in, in John 19, 21, we read, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And yet Pilate left the sign as it was. It was more of a mock than anything. I mean, this was their king, a beaten, bloody, powerless, crucified teacher. Well, little did Pilate or anyone understand that this moment of Jesus' death on the cross, that this was Jesus' moment of kingly triumph. There, Jesus did the, the most kingly work of all. He defeated the enemies of his people. And in so doing, Jesus secured his kingly title. Psalm 110 begins with these words. It's a Psalm of David, and it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There are, there are two key things to note in this first verse, and the first is actually pointed out by Jesus himself in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 to 37, we read this, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, Jesus says. So how is he his son? Now, the dilemma was, was actually obvious once it was pointed out. Uh, the first Lord, uh, the, the one in all caps in your English Bible uh, in Psalm 110, translates the Hebrew Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the proper name for God. The, the second Lord translates the Hebrew Adonai, meaning a, a human master. And Psalm 110 is, is titled a Psalm of David. So how could David call his future king, my Lord? That would make this future king greater than David, David's master. And yet it's clear from other places in scripture that the coming king would be a son of David. God promised that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. You see that in 2 Samuel 7. And of course, the answer to the dilemma is something that Christians have confessed from the beginning, that while Jesus was born a son of David, he is more than that. He is also the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate in the flesh. That's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 1, that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, 
and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now, because Jesus' contemporary religious leaders did not get that, uh, they could not answer his question, which of course delighted the crowds and angered the religious elite. Jesus is the Lord. He is a son of David, but he is also the son of God. He is David's Lord and ours. Now, the second thing to note uh, is what is said to my Lord in verse one. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter on Pentecost spoke of this text, demonstrating, as did Jesus, that it could be referring to no great king in Israel's past, not even the great David himself. He, he says of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, after the hour of Jesus' greatest humiliation in his cross and burial came Jesus' greatest exaltation in his resurrection and ascension and Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, something no other king of Israel had ever experienced, not even David. Now, I don't know whether there is really a chair in heaven at the right hand of God, but whether there is or is not, the point is clear. Jesus, the incarnate Son, the incarnate Jesus, the God-man, has been given a share in God the Father's rule. He shares the Father's glory and the Father's authority. That is what it means to sit at the right hand of a king. And he sits there until I make your enemies your footstool. That means that Jesus' enemies will be placed under his feet, which means they will be subdued. If your enemy is under your foot, right, there's a pretty good chance you've won. Solomon said of David that he, he did not have the leisure to build the temple. First Kings 5.3, he did not have the leisure to build the temple because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. See, to be placed under the feet is, is, is uh, for, for a king to place his enemies under his feet is for that king to have victory. And so God the Father here, according to Psalm 110, gives the incarnate Son a share in his rule and promises him victory over all of his enemies. Jesus is Lord. He is David's Lord. He is our Lord. He is, in fact, the Lord of heaven and earth because he sits at, at the right hand of the Father. Now, when many people think of Jesus, they either think of a baby in a manger or of a dead man on a tree. But Jesus is a king on his throne right now. There is a Lord, and he is not us. Now, now, we may not like this language of lordship and kingship, but I think it is just the language that we need to wake us up from our ideological relativism. right? We, we, we want the question of Jesus to be an academic one, a, a theoretical one even. There's nothing at stake, really. Truth is relative, after all, we think. But we are not autonomous individuals with freedom to determine our truth for ourselves or chart our own course in life. There is a Lord. 
that he will put his enemies under his feet. Jesus has been exalted. Second, Jesus is presently ruling. This is the manifestation of Jesus' rule. You know, over the past several weeks, we have been a, a nation consumed with politics. And, and I don't disparage politics, right? It's a, it's a manifestation of human dominion over the earth, and it's a means to the end of the, the common good. But it is entirely possible to get so caught up in who runs this country that we forget who rules the world. Sometimes even Christians forget this, right? We, we think Jesus' rule will come in the future, and we do await its consummation. But Jesus' rule has already begun. Matthew 28, Jesus says it very clearly. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, Psalm 110 verse 2 says this, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, the Lord there is, again, the word Adonai, but David uh, there says not my Lord, referring to the king, but the Lord, referring to Yahweh. And the pronoun your, in verse 2, through to the end of the psalm, refers to David's Lord, or Jesus, the king. And so verse 2 says, the Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your, King Jesus, mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. See, the picture is this. God, supporting the king, will extend his rule, his mighty scepter. So that this king rules in the midst of his enemies. Now, that's a bit of an odd phrase because you might say a king rules over his enemies or simply defeats his enemies. But what does it mean that he rules in their midst? And then you have verse three, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. To offer freely actually has overtones of the free will offering. They are giving themselves up a living sacrifice for their king. They are his holy army dressed in holy garments. And that last line in verse three likely means that they will be strong in battle, young and fresh like the morning dew. Well, when did this happen for Jesus? When did the father send forth Jesus' scepter? How does Jesus rule in the midst of his enemies? What does it mean that we offer ourselves freely to him? Well, again, Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 28 and in Acts 1.8. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples, teaching them to obey. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, the picture is actually very clear. Jesus has received authority from the Father. He then he equipped his disciples with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he sent them out to the ends of the earth so that wherever people learn to obey Jesus' teaching, right there, he is ruling. When his people live in the midst of his enemies, when they obey Jesus despite slander and rejection and persecution, right there, Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies. 
Whenever we obey, uh, obey Jesus, Jesus fulfills verse two. And whenever we offer ourselves up a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, whenever we devote ourselves to Jesus' work in the world, we fulfill verse three, which is to say that Jesus is presently ruling in and through his church. Uh, Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter one, where he says of Christ that the father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, Jesus is presently reigning over the church as head of the church, and he extends his reign, his mighty scepter, as the church proclaims the gospel, and more and more people submit to King Jesus. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and Jesus is presently ruling in the church through the proclamation of the gospel. Well, what, what is that gospel? Uh, Jesus reigns, number three, point three, Jesus reigns as king and priest. This is the, the grace of Jesus' rule. All of this talk of ruling and reigning will put many people off. I mean, in our country, right, the idea of kingship leaves a kind of sour taste in our mouths. We contrast kings with freedom. I mean, kings rule harshly and absolutely for their own good and glory, but we are a nation of free people. There are two thoughts that I hope will clear up any misunderstanding here. The first is in verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is the second word from God to David's Lord. Uh, first was verse one, sit at my right hand. Now verse four, you are a priest forever. The order of Melchizedek is, is primarily significant for this reason. A kingship in Israel was, uh, was kept separate from priesthood. Uh, Dr. Boyce points out that this was similar to, to our division of powers in the U.S. government, right? No one in, in Israel should have too much power. And so priests and kings were separate people. And prophets, of course, are often a third group off on their own. Priests were from the tribe of Levi. Kings were from the tribe of Judah. Never the two shall meet. But that was not the case with Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this obscure figure mentioned in only three places in scripture, three short verses in Genesis chapter 14, one verse here in Psalm 110, and then a number of times in Hebrews chapters five through seven. And what is significant about Melchizedek is that he was around before the division of priest and king, and he himself was both priest and king. Genesis 14 introduces him like this. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and Salem means king of peace, or, or Salem means peace, and so he was king of peace, and he was a priest of God. The coming king, David's Lord, the Messiah, would be a king like that, both king and priest. And the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, spells out Jesus' priestly work. It shows us that Jesus offered up himself as a sacrifice for sins, that he died in our place, that he bore the judgment we deserve to cleanse not just our bodies, 
like those many Old Testament ceremonies, but to cleanse our conscience from dead works that we might serve the living God. In short, because of Jesus' priestly work, we find grace, forgiveness, mercy, and welcome into the presence of the Father. See, many kings faced with rebels have one option, the firing squad, right? Put them to death, get rid of them. But Jesus, when faced with treasonous rebels, is ready to extend grace. Yes, he rules as a king, but he is ready to show grace to rebels. Mercy characterizes his reign. He is such a king who intercedes with the Father in heaven on our behalf. As I said before, Jesus' greatest kingly work was defeating our enemies of sin and Satan at the cross. And on the basis of that work, Jesus now intercedes for us, pleading with the Father for our forgiveness based on the merits of his blood. And of course, since the Father is the one who planned the whole thing, he is delighted to answer the prayers of his Son and show us mercy. Jesus has been exalted to the Father's right hand. He is presently ruling in the church through the gospel, and he reigns as king and priest, and so is ready to show mercy to rebels like you and me. Fourth, Jesus will put the world right. The justness of Jesus' rule. Verses five and six are important and likely to be not understood, or at least not liked. See, we like the image of the baby in the manger and even the lamb on the cross, but the king on his throne is quite another thing. But Jesus is a king on his throne, and so he does kingly things. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. First, uh, the psalmist says, the Lord is at your right hand. Uh, notice, as I mentioned before, that th this is imagery, right? Because in verse one, the king sits at God's right hand. And in verse five, God is at the king's right hand. And now we don't need to assume that some movement has taken place from verses one to five. The point is, God, the Lord, is with his servant king. He is with him in battle. Yes, battle. Now, there is some confusion over what happens next in the psalm. From the second half of verse 5 to the end of the psalm, the pronoun used is he. Uh, verse 5, he will shatter kings. 6, he will execute judgment. He will shatter chiefs. He will drink from the brook, by the way. He will lift up his head. So the question is, uh, if consistent with the rest of the psalm, that, that he should refer to the Lord God, to Yahweh. And yet many commentators say, especially because of what is said in verse 7 about drinking from the brook, that these verses seem to be referring to David's Lord, the coming king and Messiah, not to the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. So commentators puzzle over this seeming difficulty. So which is it, right? Uh, uh, is is uh, verses 5b through the end of 7, is that talking about Yahweh or is it talking about the Messiah? Well, I think what you have here is, is one of those many places in the Old Testament which doesn't fully make sense until we get the whole picture in the New Testament. I mean, how can this person be the Lord and the human king? 
Well, because Jesus is Lord. He is son of God and son of David. And Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is so identified with his father here that the, the pronoun becomes functionally irrelevant. He, our God, is acting on our behalf, the Father, through the incarnate Son. And what is he doing? He is slaughtering his enemies. He is shattering kings. He is executing judgment. He is filling the nations with corpses. He is shattering chiefs over the wide earth. It is scary language. And yet it's not unique to hear. Isaiah 42 pictures God as a man of war. Isaiah 63 pictures God as a warrior splattered in the blood of his enemies. Oh, we think, but that, that's the Old Testament, right? That's not Jesus. Well, read your Bibles, right? Revelation chapter 19. John says, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the names by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will come to crush the nations. He will execute judgment. You see, we, we were uncomfortable with this because we fight against a caricature of Jesus Right? Christ couldn't possibly be like this, people say. We, we don't believe in a, in a Christ of rule and reign, but a Christ of love. But don't you see that Christ's reign is the reign of love? Even love must put down the oppressor. Even love must defend the weak and the vulnerable. Even love must fight. If you're watching a movie and, and in this movie, a grown man is abusing a child and another man comes in and beats the first man into an inch of his life, you don't say, oh, that wasn't very loving. You cheer, right? You rejoice that the oppressor has been put down. Love must fight. The question is, are you on the side of love? If not, what scripture tells us is that love will crush you under his foot. And don't you see, right? This is what was foretold of old. After Satan brings sin into the world through temptation, God says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent will be defeated. The oppressors put down. And it's not quite clear in the ESV text, though it, it footnotes it, that in verse 6, it says he shatters heads over the wide earth. Now put that together with verse 1, and here's what you get. Christ is crushing the head of his enemy under his feet, just as God promised he would in Genesis 3.15. Why would he do such a horrible thing, we say? He is putting down the oppressor. 
that the world might be free from evil, free from oppression, free from persecution, free from abuse, free from pain and suffering and death itself. I say again, right, love must fight. The question is, are you on the side of love? If not, love will crush you under his foot. See, Jesus is going to put this world right. But that involves cleansing the world of everyone who sets up their kingdom against his. There is not room in the world for the kingdom of Jesus plus our own little kingdoms. That's where we live, right? 7.8 billion kingdoms all fighting against one another. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We need a king to unite us and bring peace. And God has appointed that king, and he will come and bring order and peace. He is a king who offers mercy. He is a king who brings justice. Whose side are you on? Jesus has been exalted. He is presently ruling. He reigns as king and priest, and he will come and put the world right on the last day. Finally, Jesus' victory is certain. Some people see Jesus as kind of a tragic figure, right? Either because he died before his time or because his followers, they think, have so distorted his original message. Others mock Christianity as a foolish religion. And sometimes as Christians, we are embarrassed for people to know that we are Christians because we don't want people to think we're one of those Christians, whoever those Christians are. And can I say this, right? Jesus is not hanging his head in shame. No, his, his battle is not done. The gospel continues to go forth. People continue to come to know him. His people are, are not perfect. Many seem mired in sin. Some take his name in vain and misrepresent him in public. There are divisions in the church. Pastors get caught in scandal. The church at times looks little different than the world. It does, uh, it does us no good to say, well, but those aren't the real Christians because their sin is closer to us than we would like to think. And to the world, it's all the same. Jesus' name is being dragged through the mud. But again, he does not hang his head in shame. Verse 7 says this, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Now his drinking by the way probably means as he goes out in battle, as David pictures his Lord going out in battle, he takes a moment to refresh himself. And the point is this coming king will not be wearied by the battle. God will provide refreshment for the fight. The battle will go on. The king will endure to the end. And Jesus is doing just that, right? He has, he has been brought into heaven to reign from heaven, to oversee the, the fight from mission central, as it were, as his gospel goes forth, as people come to know him and know his grace. And in the end, he will lift up his head. On the last day when Jesus returns, when he comes to judge the earth, when he puts down his enemies and, and raises up his people, Jesus will not hang his head in shame, wishing he could have done more. He will lift up his head in triumph. This world is in God's hands, and Jesus' victory is certain. Jesus has been exalted. He is presently ruling. He reigns as king and gracious priest. He will put the world right on the last day. His victory is certain. So what does all of this mean for us? The call of this passage to us is this. Offer yourself willingly. 
His kingdom wins. Align yourself on the side of King Jesus. He frees you for that by ensuring the victory, right? We don't have to gain victory in this life. Jesus' victory is sure. We can stop trying to establish our own little kingdoms because Jesus' kingdom has been established. He motivates us by his royal grandeur and glory. Look at this king, him who is seated on the throne. He is a king worthy of your allegiance, your service, your life. He empowers us by his spirit. The day of his power has come. His spirit has been poured out on the day of Pentecost. Do you feel inadequate to follow him, inadequate to serve him? Well, good, you are, right? We, we are in ourselves, but he will give you his spirit. Peter on the day of Pentecost said, believe in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has been seated at the Father's right hand. He has poured out his spirit so that we might offer ourselves to him freely as a part of his kingdom army. His scepter is going forth through the proclamation of grace. He holds out pardon to all who will receive it. He will put down all oppressors, undo all injustice, and make every right, every wrong right for love's sake on the last day. Will you side with him? Will you side with love incarnate? Yes, Jesus was a babe in the manger. Yes, he was beaten and bloodied on the cross, but now he reigns in heaven and he will put all things right. Look to him as king, trust in him for forgiveness and serve him as your Lord. Let's pray. Our father, we pray that you would give us, give us a clear sight of our savior, Jesus. Help us to see him in all of his royal grandeur and glory. Help us to see him, to marvel, to worship, and then to offer ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Help us to to devote ourselves to King Jesus and his cause in the world, that he would be glorified, that his name would be great, that many would come to know the grace of the Redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.